if you'll take your Bible and uh, let's turn to Psalm 23 again this morning. And there are uh, notes uh, in your bulletin. If you, those of you who like to take notes, fill in blanks. Um, you can grab that and follow along. Kind of my thought process as we are continuing in this series on shattered dreams. Now, one of the things I learned quickly growing up is that um, as a child, you know, you become scarred. I'm talking about physical scars, and the reason you get physical scars is because you do stupid stuff, right? So, uh, yeah, so one day we decided to play chicken on sleds, uh, so one person's on this hill, and this is the person on this hill, and it's like, who's going to chicken out as you're heading towards each other? Well, um, yeah, we failed to chicken, you know, to, to not, yeah, so I took a sled like right here in my chin, you know, the front runner, those old steel sleds, not the plastic little things they got now, we're talking about the old-fashioned yeah, so stitches all across my chin. I have a scar there. I've, I've taken a softball to the face, broke my nose, scar across here. I had stitches. I, I've got all kinds of stitches. Uh, you know, I've had stitches and scars on my body because I was doing stupid stuff, okay? So it, helped, it resulted in an accident, and that accident resulted in um, an injury. But the good news about your physical body is it has a miraculous ability to heal itself, right? So you, you get stitched up, uh, the wound goes away, you may carry a scar around. Some of you may have scars from surgeries that you've had on your shoulder, your heart, wherever else, appendix was taken out. Uh, but the fact is, the body heals. But what do we do when we have emotional scars, Scars that are the result of deep wounding, traumas that took place in your life. In the very first message, we talked about five areas of your life in which trauma happens to you as a child, and these five areas are absolutely outside of your control, but it leaves you as a walking wounded individual. And as children, we don't know what to do with trauma, we don't know what to do with the hurt necessarily. Um, you know, we're not, we're not going to go seek out a therapist. We're not going to sit down and talk to somebody about it. Uh, you know, we may cry. We may feel bad. And then we, we do a lot of things. We may just like shove it on the inside, stuff it down. You know, life goes on, so on and so forth. But as we get older and we continue to experience um, all kinds of emotional woundedness, it might be that your woundedness came because somebody said something to you that was deeply hurtful. It might have been from your parents. I know adults who all of their lives never heard once from their parents, I love you. And as adults, they still are screaming on the inside over the fact that they never felt loved, they never felt accepted by their parents. It might be that your parents, I don't know, you know, you may have had wonderful parents. There might have been some friction between you and your parents. That happens in seasons in our lives when you get to be teenagers, you know. Uh, we kind of go a little crazy and we push the boundaries and our parents kind of have to like stand on us a little bit and that can create conflict and hurt and pain. And there are some of you who experienced physical abuse growing up. Some of you experienced sexual abuse growing up. Some of you, uh, you know, you grew up in a home where there was a breakdown in the marriage and mom and dad divorced or maybe one of your parents died, and so there was all kinds of turmoil and trauma and emotional pain. For some of you, as you got older, the, the, the pain got worse because maybe you were in a marriage and suddenly your spouse came home one day and said, you know what, I just don't love you anymore. I want out of this relationship, and they packed up and left. 
there are thousands and thousands of different things that can happen to us through the course of our lifetime that create deep emotional woundedness within us. The question is, what do we do with that woundedness? So I've, I've been using this backpack to represent your life, right? So this is a small backpack. It's not very big. Some of you are carrying a backpack that's five times this size. But inside this backpack, there are rocks, and those rocks represent the woundedness of my life. And so those rocks can be labeled different ways. It might be, you know, your, your rock is guilt, disappointment, um, a sense of condemnation, loneliness, fear, worry, bitterness, unforgiveness, I mean, just there's a thousand different labels you can put on those rocks, but here you are carrying your backpack every single day. I remember doing premarital counseling with a couple, and uh, I always talk about, hey, what's, your, what's in your backpack that you're bringing into the relationship? Because everybody brings their backpack into the relationship, and it's filled with stuff, and the question is, have you dealt with what's inside the backpack? And I remember those young ladies looks at me and she goes, well, I just want you to know my fiance, his, back, his backpack is like a duffel bag. I just want you to know mine's like a double trunk that I'm bringing in the relationship. So at least she was honest about what she was you know, bringing into the relationship as opposed to him. So when you go through a time of intense pain or deep woundedness, whether it's emotionally or relationally or spiritually, you need something greater than yourself in order to experience healing from your woundedness. Try as we might, we do not, as human beings, navigate very well through our woundedness. Now, we'll do a lot of things well, but that's not one of them for most of us. And as we discovered last week, every wound... Every rock in that backpack represents some kind of loss. And every loss needs to be grieved. Man, it's got to be grieved well. Because if you don't, all you will do is carry around those things with you that will permeate your life, your thoughts, your emotions, and it will begin to spill out on everybody around you. Now, last week, we talked about the three methods that we learned as children in handling grief, right? Remember, so you had a pet that died, and uh, your parents said, hey, don't cry, don't worry about it. I know you're, you know, you're crying now. It it's really feels bad, but we'll, we'll get another goldfish. We'll get another dog. We'll get another cat. Uh, don't ever get another cat. We'll get another dog. And, and uh, <laughs> All right, cat people. Uh, so, so what, what did we learn? We learned the three steps. In, or some, let's say you're in high school and you, got, you, you were dating somebody and you, you broke up, right? They broke your heart. They broke up with you. And your parents tried to console you because you're crying, you're upset, saying, you know, it's okay. There's a lot of fish out in the sea. You know, give it time. You'll, you'll be moving on to somebody else. So the first three um, procedures or steps that we've learned in grief management is Bury your feelings, replace your losses, and time heals all wounds. But the fact of the matter is, time heals nothing, and you can't bury your wounds, you can't bury your feelings, you can't replace enough losses, because whatever you bury, when you bury toxic emotions inside of you, it will come out into every relationship you have on planet Earth. You can try to stuff it, you can try to hide it, you can try to wear a mask so that nobody else knows about it. 
You come into a marriage relationship and you, you've probably worn several masks. Nobody comes into relationships in marriage like giving everything about them right, right up front. We kind of hold some things back and keep things in secret because we don't want them to know everything about us because otherwise they may not want to, you know, to marry us or, or to be around us. And so time doesn't heal anything. You cannot bury and replace without massive repercussions upon your life. Your thoughts, your words, your attitudes, and your actions are all being governed and directed by those toxic emotions, those rocks that you are carrying in your backpack into that relationship. And if you don't believe me, here's the challenge I gave you. If you don't think that other people don't see this in you, sit down with somebody, your spouse or a trusted friend, and say, hey, what is it like to live on the other side of me? What's that like? And let them be open and honest with you. And, and they, they're going to be able to point out some things that you probably you know, know about yourself, but you don't want to acknowledge, but you're, you're going to begin to discover some of the ways that you didn't even realize you know, attitudes and actions and words that you're using that uh, you aren't even aware of. But it has a negative effect upon those who are the recipients of those words, attitudes, thoughts, and actions. And so whether you realize it or not, your infection of toxic emotional waste infiltrates into your gifts, your talents, your workplace, every aspect of your life. You know, bodily, if I have a wound and I do not care for that wound properly, I can get, you know, it becomes septic. So an infection goes into my blood system, carries throughout my entire body. The same thing is true emotionally. If that emotional hurt, trauma, is not dealt with, if it is not grieved properly, if it is not worked through in a healthy manner, it becomes septic within your emotional system. You can't bury toxicity in your emotions without it coming out. Not only through your words, thoughts, actions, emotions, it comes out through your body. Your soul and body are so intertwined that it, it results in things like migraines and stress and anxiety. And I, I mean, the list medically goes on and on and on. That the medical field even acknowledges that a lot of the physical you know, diseases that we deal with really have a root base of emotional toxicity. Now, all the time I was growing up, and, and again, you know, I didn't realize this, my mother smoked, all right? I never thought anything about it as a kid. Everybody smoked when I was a kid, you know? I was the Marlboro man. I wanted to grow up and be the Marlboro man. And so, <clears throat> but what I didn't realize as a, as a kid is that, you know, when I left my house, our house smelled like smoke, my clothes smelled like smoke, my skin, my hair smelled like smoke. I never thought about that, never gave it a second thought until I became older as an adult, got married, moved away, came back <clears throat> with our kids and, uh, you know, visiting my mom, and all of a sudden you walk in the house, and it's like, whoa. And then my kids' asthma started acting up, and I said, Mom, you know, I, if you want to see your grandchildren, you're going to have to quit smoking. It's amazing. My mom quit like that. Like that. And she, she was motivated, right? So the same thing is true emotionally. We are vulnerable to hurts and heartaches and disappointments, and we don't even realize how it is permeating our entire existence. My desire through this series 
is that you will become the best you that you can be. But you will never be the best you that you can be as long as you're carrying this around in life. Because here's, here's the deal. Every, day, every week, month, year, you keep adding to this. And if you're not pulling anything out and you keep adding, I mean, this thing's going to be five times this size. And when you're carrying around that kind of load, first of all, it is unhelpful, right? There's nothing in this bag that is helpful to my life that is really good for me. These are things I need to unpack. These are things that I need to let go of. These are things that I need to give over to the Lord. And, and so we're, we're going to try to learn that together in, in this series. We, but I do want to stand here and, and make a, a statement, an unashamed statement. There is a God who can heal you and unload the backpack. He's called Jehovah Rapha for a reason. But listen, it's not that you just sit back and say, okay, God, like zap me. Let's get it on. Just zap me and unload my backpack. It doesn't work that way. God says that we are to work out what God is working in us. God has the ability to heal. God desires to heal. He wants to unload the backpack, but you have to cooperate with him in the process. If you want to receive the promise, healing, then you have to go through the process in order to experience the promise. And so we're talking about steps that you can take that will help you navigate through the process of unloading your backpack so that you can be healed of the things that are inflicting your life from the inside out. God is often, and this is a statement I have in the top of your outline if you're taking notes, God, the problem is God is often an attachment to our lives, but he's not at the center of our lives. So this is another step in the process. If you want to experience healing, God needs to be at the center, at the core, at the hub of your life. Now, many Christians believe God's there until push comes to shove, something rocks your world, and then all of a sudden you realize God's not quite as close as you thought he was. And now you're scrambling trying to figure out, well, what am I going to do? And God, what are you going to do? And how's this all going? And so immediately we go into the prayer mode of what? God, you've got to get rid of this. You've got to take this out of my life. You, you, you've got to rid me of this now, 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 quick. When it just might be that God is using a very painful event in your life in order to develop in you Christ-likeness. The Bible says that God does that all the time. Now, it's not that God wants you to take this rock and put it in your backpack and leave it there permanently. When God has accomplished what he is accomplishing, he'll remove the, the rock. But oftentimes, we just have no idea what he's doing because we really don't have that deep of a walk with the Lord. So in the 23rd Psalm, David is reflecting over his life. He's an older man by now. He has walked with God for many, many years. David himself had experienced many shattered dreams. He's carrying a lot of scar tissue emotionally because of things that have happened to him throughout the course of his lifetime. But he also understands, and if you open up the book of Psalms and you read his journals about how he navigates through that so that God can bring healing out of those tumultuous incidences in his life, 
rather than just stuffing them in a backpack and carrying the load around with him. How did David have such a confidence in God? And how did David maintain his attitude of worship and peace and contentment and all these things, regardless of what's going around, even to the degree when King Saul is like trying to hunt him down and kill him? For years he was on the run. So how did David navigate through all of that? Well, he gives us the answer right here in the 23rd Psalm. When he said, the Lord is my shepherd. He didn't say the Lord is a shepherd, a would-be shepherd. He said he's my shepherd. In other words, it's personal. I've, I've put the Lord at the center of my life. Therefore, I shall not want. In other words, I have everything I need. If I believe God is going to take care of me, then I'll be willing to drop the baggage. You see, some of you don't want want to drop the baggage. This has become your identity. This has become your family heirloom. You love to sit down and talk to people about all that you've gone through in life and how people have hurt you and misused you and abused you and how God has let you down and, and all these other things that get, and all these rocks that get stuffed in the backpack because that has become your identity. And you, you quite frankly, you don't know how you could live without this identity. And so you're wanting, right? You're wanting but you're not navigating towards the healing that God wants to bring into your life. And so uh, what has become your main source of direction and protection and comfort and identity is keeping you from experiencing what God wants, and that is his best for you. So let's go on how David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in the green pastures, He is the one who leads me beside the quiet waters. Watch this. He, what? Restores my soul. Who restores the soul? God does. Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. In other words, whatever your need is, your spiritual need, and so the healing of the soul is a spiritual need. Jesus didn't save you just to get you off of planet Earth into heaven. Jesus saved you that you might walk in the freedom of Christ while you're here on planet Earth. He wants to save you and heal you, heal your soul and deliver you from the things that Satan is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy out of your life. You believe that? That's exactly what God wants for you. So every spiritual need you have, God has the ability to heal. And because spiritually speaking, we have all been deeply, deeply wounded. And so uh, it's easy to think that, you know, God's in control of your life when you're, you know, it's sunny outside and the daisies are in full bloom. But success can skew our view using, leaving us, you know, to believe something that we really don't believe. In other words, every, everyone can say, well, you know, yeah, and then God is at the center of my life, man. He's my shepherd, and I'm following him, and man, things are just like, you know, just, really? <clears throat> to give an example of this, when 9-11 happened many years ago, it was amazing. As the Twin Towers went down, the Pentagon was attacked, and all of a sudden terrorism has hit our shores, 
It was amazing how for the next several months, churches all across America began to swell. People were coming to the altar and seeking God and wanting God and looking to God. And then when all of a sudden the threat began to dissipate and it began to go away, then all the, shrunk, the, the churches just shrunk right back to the size they normally were before the 9-11 incident ever happened. You see, a lot of people have attached God to their lives, but he's not at the center of their life. And so um, putting God back in control is all about putting him at the center. And so my big idea for this morning is who you know, who you know, who you're trusting is how you're going to grow. Now notice what he went on to say. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. In other words, you have any directional needs? Paths are, every pathway has a destination. God always wants to set your feet on the right path that leads to the right destination. We all have directional needs in our lives, decisions that we have to make that are going to set the direction of our lives. God says, I want to help you with that. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You got some emotional needs? He's your guy. This is what, this is what David is saying. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. He's speaking of physical needs. Surely goodness and, and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's talking about your eternal needs. So God is saying whether it's your spiritual needs, your directional needs, your emotional needs, your physical needs, your eternal needs, every need you have, I'm the guy. I'm the one you're going to go to. I'm the one you're going to look to in order to meet those needs in your life. And so if it stands to reason, if I want to experience God's healing on the inside in this emotional um, turmoil, this emotional hurt and pain that I keep carrying around with me that just keeps growing year after year after year, because hurt never remains just hurt. Hurt always evolves into anger and anger into bitterness and bitterness into resentment and resentment into unforgiveness. And you are now a walking, toxic individual when you reach that state of being. And it spills out. Everything that you are sowing into your life, everybody else around you has to reap it. All right, so if I'm sowing anger into my life, guess who gets to reap that? Everybody I'm in relationship with. My anger gets out of control. I explode. Words begin to fly. Actions begin to take place because the, the root cause of my anger, anger is a secondary emotion, is that I am deeply wounded and I'm reacting out of my woundedness. So how do we put God back in control? This is not rocket science but you must be diligent in taking the steps. Number one, do the work of repentance. Do the work of repentance. The word repentance comes from the Greek word metanoa, which means to change your mind, right? It changed the way you think. Repentance roots out our inferior and faulty thought processes and replaces them with truth. As long as I'm operating on faulty thought processes, for example, when you're wounded as a child, Children are great observers, but they're poor interpreters of what's going on around them. But what happened is, in that woundedness, you begin to develop some lie-based thinking about yourself, about the person who brought the woundedness into your life, 
and you began developing thought processes on the basis of those lies. And so what God wants to do in the healing process is to replace lies with truth so that you begin to operate and function on truth rather than lies. If you want to change your life, you have to change your thoughts. As long as you maintain the same thought processes, your life will never change because your thoughts affect your emotions and your emotions affect your actions. All right, so this is a process. And let me give you an example. Um, when Marl and I, um, you know, first got married, we've been very open about, you know, we had a very rough marriage for the first 10 years. But when we got married, guess what we brought into the relationship? I brought all of my woundedness. She brought all of her woundedness. And so she was looking to me to kind of be her savior. I was looking to her to be kind of my savior. In other words, what I did was I kind of moved God out of the hub of my life, the center of my life, and I put my wife in that God spot. Like, okay, I'm looking for happiness and and I'm looking for wholeness, and I'm looking, and I think that my, I think my wife can bring that to me. And so we got married, right? Guess what I discovered? She couldn't do that. Guess what she discovered? I couldn't do that for her, but I had her in that place. And so I had to go back and say, okay, why did I do that? What was the cause behind the fact that I put her in my God spot? And here's what God showed me. Greg, you did that out of fear. Out of fear. Okay, okay, God, what am I afraid of? You're afraid of being left alone. You're afraid that she'll leave you. You're afraid that this isn't going to work out. What, what was my fear rooted in? The fact that my father left his family when I was young. And then very early, not many years after that, my grandmother, as I shared last week, a thing that I had to grieve, uh, died suddenly, and she was gone. And then a couple years after that, my oldest sister, one of my best friends, she's killed in a car accident. She's gone. So the pattern that was being established in my life was everyone who is important to me, everyone who I love, they ultimately end up leaving me. And so our relationship then was rooted in fear. And that fear was driving my thought processes and my decision-making processes. And, uh, yeah, without, you know, who or what is occupying your God spot, that center of your life, and why is something that you need to think about. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows out of it. In the Hebrew culture, the heart was a metaphor for the center core of who you are, your thoughts and your emotions and, and everything about you. And so what it, the Bible is saying and what God is saying to us through the psalmist, through David, is this. Listen, you ever have a, a, a bicycle wheel and you'll notice there's a center hub and then there are spokes on the bike? Well, those spokes, think about the, the, that bicycle wheel being your life, and that hub is where God wants to dwell. It, that hub is where God wants to have rulership and, and, and not just 
Not, not like sitting there like dictating, Greg, you got to do this, this, and this. But, but he wants to be at the center of my hub, and then everything else in my life is a spoke. My family's a spoke. My job's a spoke. My hobbies are a spoke. What God does not want to be is one of the spokes, and you be at the hub or someone else. You can make your children the hub of your life. You can make your grandchildren the hub of your life. You can make your job the hub of your life. You can put a lot of things at the center of your life. But I'm telling you, those things will never have the capability of healing you from your emotional trauma. Those things cannot help you unpack your backpack. God is not interested in being just another spoke in your life. He wants to be at the hub of your life. Listen, if you put people, family, children, as the most important thing to you on earth, you will end up living your life trying to please people for the rest of your life. You'll start chasing after acceptance. Oh, if I could just be cool enough, smart enough, funny enough, if I could just be popular enough, good-looking enough, if I, then I would feel accepted. And so all of that becomes what? Me-focused, right? And so uh, here's how this spells out, is that let's say, you know, you, just, you, you have this mental picture of yourself that I'm not worthy and I'm not good enough and I'm not pretty enough and I'm not smart enough and I'm not this enough and I'm not this enough. So in, when, in life, as you're journeying through life and you get older and you're thinking, you know what, I really want to have somebody to love. I really want to have somebody to marry. I really want to spend my life with somebody, but nobody seems to be coming along. Is that because uh, you are now becoming a people pleaser and you, you think that you only find your acceptance by attachment to somebody else is that you will go for the first guy or girl who comes down the tracks, even though God may be saying to you, this is not the right person because you're allowing the loneliness to drive your life now and not the security of waiting on your heavenly father to provide that person for you. Does that make sense? I, hear, I see, I deal with people like this all the time who say, I made a huge mistake. I can't believe I did that. If you want to know who is at the center of your life, here's three questions you can ask. What do I trust for my security? What do I trust for my security in most? Is it money? Is it your job? Success? Where do I find my significance is another question. What makes me feel important? What makes me feel worthy? And who do I trust for my salvation? You know, Jesus says, don't worry about these things. Seek first the kingdom of God. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. The peace of Christ will surpasses all human understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. So who's at the center of your life? Number two, start the messy cleanup. Start the messy cleanup. After repentance, changing the way you think, we often have to go back and clean up the mess. Some never get to this step because you are, for, for some of you, you're living in denial. You're denying everything that's in here. And so when people say, hey, how are you doing? Fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's great. Life's wonderful. <laughs> but everybody around you knows better because it's in your countenance. It's in your actions. It seeps, it seeps through your personality and because this all affects you in such a dramatic way. You are really an emotional wreck, but you tell everybody you are fine. 
And when we fail to develop healthy emotional habits, we will ultimately undermine the relationships that we care about the most. Number two, some of you just minimize it, right? You minimize the hurt. Did you ever notice the Israelites, when they got out of 400 years of slavery, uh, God took them out into the, you know, one taken to the promised land. They're 40 years in the wilderness wandering, and God's providing for them. But when they get, when mad, they get mad at God or get mad at Moses, what's the first thing they want to do? They want to go back to Egypt. Wasn't it incredible how they could minimize 400 years of slavery and hard work and taskmasters that were beating them and, you know, pharaohs who were saying to the midwives, hey, if it's a male born, throw him in the Nile River. They forgot all about that, minimized all the hurt and the pain of slavery because they just didn't want to deal with today. You see, our society tends to minimize emotional pain you know, somebody gets hit by a car and they're sent to the ER and end up in the hospital. We'll send them cards and flowers and visit and calls and all those things. Somebody breaks down emotionally and gets sent to a mental hospital. None of that happens. We put a stigma on it as though there's something wrong with them. Well, there is something wrong with them. Just like there's something wrong physically, we can get all out of whack emotionally and we need to get healed. Or rationalization. People make excuses for themselves or for their offenders. You know, well, you know, my parents did the best they could. They had a difficult childhood themselves. Well, that might be fine and well, and they may have, but that's not addressing your issues. Or disassociation. That means you block out the pain. You know, oftentimes when somebody experiences an asexual attack, it's they, they, they move into the mode. It's, a, it's, it's really kind of a a coping mode of disassociation. It's like they're having an out-of-body experience. They're not in the body as it is happening to them in order to deal with the trauma that's happening at that moment in time. You know, oftentimes children who have experienced great trauma early on in life, they don't have the capacity to deal with that level of trauma, and so they kind of, you know, it just kind of like goes underground in their lives, but, but God is. He has created us in such a way that when the time is right, that can be brought back to the surface for the purpose of receiving healing in that area of your life. What you don't want to do is just like disassociate everything in your life, and then you just like start looking for coping mechanisms by which you can handle the stress and the trauma and, and the memories and the hurt and the pain in your life, and those coping mechanisms are really never very helpful. In fact, they cause sometimes a lot more harm than they do good. Listen, coping mechanisms won't empty this backpack. Only God can help you through that healing process. He wants to empty this thing, but if you're unwilling, you know, if you're going to spend your, your life in denial and just minimizing it and, uh, you know, rationalizing it, disassociating from it, it's not going to to work. Number three, you got to think differently. You got to think differently. For some of you who still have your backpack full, you have developed over time a victim mentality. A victim mentality, a mindset. And when you have a victim mentality, you give your power over to the person who inflicted the pain upon your life. 
In other words, they now have the power to control you, whether they realize it or not. Because it might be that you're waiting for them to come crawling on their knees and saying how sorry they are and how you need, you know, please forgive them, but that may never, ever happen for you. And so victims spend massive amounts of time over time just sucking life out of everybody around them. Right? You come into the future with a toxic waste from the past, and every, every comment that's made to you, like at a dinner, it's like you scrutinize it and overanalyze it. Marla and I had a young lady at our house a few years back, new to our church, um, had, had suffered a lot of trauma as a child, and um, really so much so, and she didn't really want to deal with it. All she prayed was that God would just take her out of this world and take her to heaven. Now, she's young. Now, so that was her prayer every day. God, just take me out of the world, take me to heaven. I, I don't want to deal with this. So we had her over to our house. It was amazing. We had what was seemingly you know, a great time with her. But when she got home, she started analyzing and scrutinizing everything we said, she said, and w- did we misunderstand. She called my wife and, and like, talked for like an hour and a half going through every line, line by line, everything we talked about, discussed. And this is what victim mentality does to you. And so it just, it's constantly playing in your mind over and over and over and over again. And, and you revert back to grief, bad grief management. You just bury your feelings. You try to replace your losses. You think that somehow time's going to heal, and it just doesn't happen. So you need to understand what triggers your responses in life? So let's go back to my wife and I and our marriage. We were married early on. Uh, <laughs> we're having problems. And so from time to time, my wife would come home and say, we need to talk. Now, when a man hears those words, he retreats into his shell <laughs> and say, okay, um, where shall we talk and my next response was always, and what are we going to talk about? Which, which made my wife mad, right? So because, I remember, I'm, I'm fear-driven, fear-driven that she's going to somehow, she's going to leave me, she's going to just walk out of the marriage, and, and things were getting pretty rough, and I, I was just like, oh, I don't want to hear this. I just don't want to hear it. I just don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. And so, you know, we may sit at home and talk, or we may go to a restaurant, and and so, uh, you know, because I didn't want to hear it, I didn't want to deal with it, I may pick up my phone and start looking at my phone, and then that would make her even madder, because now, like, the phone's more important than she is, and, and, and that would, you know, and neither one of us, we didn't fight well, right? We didn't know how to argue with each other, and, and one of the reasons why I did not fight well is because I, I'm living in, a, in an avoidance, fear-driven relationship because I'm afraid if we got into a fight, she's going to get mad and storm out of the house and leave me forever. See, that's a victim mentality. And so I, I put in all these safeguards, and, and, but the problem is <laughs> I had to ask the Lord, Lord, why do I have this? Why do I feel this way? Why am I so walled up? Why am I so, you know, just like in a, a turtle in a shell? Why can't I open up? Why can't I express my feelings? Why can't I express what's going on inside of me? And the Lord said to me, Greg, throughout your life, 
You felt like nobody paid attention to you, that nobody cared, that, that you were just kind of there, but you weren't there. And, and so as a result, I became, you know, an introvert. And, and you responded by shutting down, and you felt like you were invisible. And so the, you learned this trigger point of, of victim mentality that is fear-driven. Listen, the day you take ownership of your life is the day that you begin to take control back. And you have to. Or you will live your life as a victim. And you don't have to be that way. Victim mentality will never unpack that backpack. You have to take control. You have to take responsibility for your life. Again, a victim mentality gives the power to the other person who inflicted the pain. You've got to take that back. And here's number four, is you've got to set healthy boundaries. Healthy boundaries around your life. Personal boundaries. There are no healthy relationships without healthy boundaries. Here's what some of you do. See, you got somebody in your family they got their backpack full, and you have a Messiah complex. You're going to be Jesus for them. And you're going to come, and you're going to take that backpack off them and say, oh, you don't need to carry that alone. I'll carry it for you. I'll help navigate you through all this stuff. I'll, I'll do everything for you. Or uh, some of you are on the, maybe on the opposite end of the spectrum, and so you are people pleasers. Right, Because you feel like your security and, and your acceptance is all wrapped up in how people respond to you. And so you're going to grab their backpack because you want to be a, you, you're a people pleaser. And you think, well, if I take their backpack, they'll like me, they'll accept me, they'll want to be my friend. Uh, you know, we can relate together and so on and so forth. So I want to just, just use a concept of, um, of your yard, all right? Let me make a couple statements. It is, all right, so we read in the Bible where Paul says we are to share one another's burdens, and we take that to the extreme. So let me give you a couple statements. It is godly to help someone with a crushing load. It is not godly to carry someone's crushing load. God never told you to do that. They have to carry that themselves. You can come alongside them. I can come alongside and help them carry that load temporarily, but if I take their backpack on myself, listen, you are subverting what God is trying to do in their life. And they'll just have to take them right back around that same track. Number two, we are responsible to someone, but we are not responsible for someone. I'm not responsible, for example, let's say you have a teenager and they, they won't get up in the morning. They won't get up in the morning and go to school. And so they just require you as the parent. You gotta, every day you've got to fight to get them out of bed. You've got to fight to get them, you know, take a shower, to get dressed, to be on school on time. And so it, it, now you can do one of two things as a parent, right? You can either continue that mode and be like their Savior, their Jesus to them, and do this every day throughout the course of their school life. Or you can take the Medea route and just get a bucket of water, go throw it on them one time, and it's solved, right? I'm not responsible for you. I may help you a couple times, but if this is going to be an ongoing thing, 
then I'm not responsible. Or somebody comes to you with financial need, all right? So as a pastor, you know, and, and for you, it's like, okay, I want to help people, right? And so, you know, you pray with them, and you may help them financially. You may take some meals over, help them out, but, and, and say, you know what? Let's sit down, and let's try to help you work out a budget, see if we can get your finances in order. And they refuse to do that. They won't do it. They won't stop spending. And so they keep coming to you and coming to you and coming to you and coming to you. Listen, you've just picked up their backpack if you keep bailing them out. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to treat them with dignity, yes, and to love them and to honor them. But loving someone and honoring them does not mean I carry your backpack. So here's my yard. In your yard, in my yard, there are feelings and there are attitudes and there are choices that we get to make. This is very, very important. You've got to set boundaries. Feelings. My feelings come to the surface like yours. Now, again, if, if I have the Messiah complex, right, and somebody comes to me and they're just all emotionally distraught, what's the first thing I'm going to do? I'm going to grab their backpack. I'll take care of it. I'll take care. I got it. I got it. I'll handle it. Not wise. So we all have feelings, right? And so a lot of things, you know, when things happen to us, feelings happen. Feelings are very unreliable because they fluctuate. Uh, feelings are easily manipulated, you know, when I go to the Ohio State Fair, when I, get, when I cross the infomercial building, I have to hand my wallet and my cash to my wife because I know when I get inside of there, they're going to give me the big sales pitch, and I'm coming out with pots and pans and knives and blenders and mops. And the all, man, the, 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 oh, the best one of all was the chamois, man. I've come out with chamois. And, and then when you, they hook me in there, then they always say, and they always say, and wait. If you will buy another one, we'll throw in, you know, a bucket full of hair gel or whatever it is they're, they're peddling to you. Right? I'm a sucker for that every time. Listen, we said every week, your feelings cannot be the driver of your life. They're horrible drivers. You need to put God in the driver's seat so he can help you navigate through your feelings your attitudes, that's your value, belief systems, your boundaries have got to be hooked up around your attitudes. And then your choices. Let's say I, you know, I, I've got bad feelings and attitudes towards myself. I've been hurt. I've been betrayed. I, I beat myself up and I'm medicating all the time, self-medication by watching endless t TV. And, you know, it's like Netflix, uh, you know, day that you just like binge watch every show that you've ever wanted to binge watch. And, and so I call those weeds and rotting fruit that are in your yard. Here's what people want to do. Who controls your yard? You do. Your yard has an entry point. If somebody wants to bring their backpack into my yard and drop it off, I don't have to accept that. This is what I want to get you to see. I don't have to accept their backpack. In fact, it would be unwise for me to do that. God will not accomplish in their life what he's seeking to accomplish as long as I bring their backpack into my yard and take it off their hands. 
Now I can love them, I can encourage them, I can walk alongside of them, I can help shoulder the load for a while, but it's not my responsibility to bring healing into their lives. That is a journey you must take on your own. So when somebody comes and tries to drop off their backpack, you just politely say, thank you very much, but I'm handing that right back to you. Listen, if people will not accept responsibility for their lives, there is nothing you can do to change that. If you want to be healed, God can heal you. But you have to take the responsibility, start putting into practice the healthy steps that are necessary to experience the healing. And if you need somebody to help you along that journey, and most of the time you will need somebody to help you show how to take those steps, how to bring God in, and prayer into your life in order to experience that healing, we have a team here that will help you do that and, and would love to help you do that so you begin the journey of healing so that, um, yeah, so that you can then learn how to do this for yourself. It's not something that necessarily comes naturally for us, but it is a process, and I've given you several steps over these last several weeks. Yes, I used to say, you know, I used to say this as a pastor. I used to say, you know what? Everybody else's problems become my problems. Every time somebody has a problem, church becomes my problem because somehow I've got to be involved in it. That was not a true statement. I only let them become my problems because I allowed them to become my problems, not because they necessarily had to become my problems. So you know what I had to learn? Same thing you've got to learn. As much as you love people, as much as you want to help them, you must give up the Messiah complex. You are not their Savior. Jesus is. Jesus must be their shepherd. They have to want it. They have to desire it. They have to go after it if God is going to begin the process of unloading this bag. Now next Sunday, we're going to talk about one more step that is so vital, so important. But this step, you have got to let Jesus be at the core and the center of your life because everything, everything you need flows out of that relationship. Let's bow our heads together.